Hey, Kate, what's this Extra Crunch thing I keep hearing all about? Extra Crunch gives you access to in-depth coverage on how startups become successful, challenges facing the startup community, enhanced reader tools on TechCrunch.com, member-only conference calls, and more. Sign up today by visiting TechCrunch.com slash subscribe. But honestly, guys, you should definitely be signing up for Extra Crunch. There's tons of amazing content on the site. I, for example, wrote a deep dive on the fertility industry and the VCs and founders that are leading that new sector. If you haven't signed up for Extra Crunch yet, all new members receive a free trial. And even better, if you're an annual member, you receive discounts to TechCrunch events like TechCrunch Disrupt. Enter the promo code EQUITY to save 20% on an annual membership plan. Again, that's TechCrunch.com slash subscribe. Select the annual plan and enter the promo code EQUITY. Hello and welcome to Equity Shot. This is TechCrunch's Kate Clark and I'm joined today by Alex Wilhelm of Crunchbase News. Hello. We are going to tackle some breaking news, but a warning from Alex first. Yeah, so it's uh, it's 2.09 p.m. here uh, on the West Coast on Thursday, which means that the Uber S1 dropped, I don't know, about 45 minutes ago, yep. maybe an hour. Um, and there was a lot to do before the show, but we want to get this out as soon as we can. So we did our note doc by hand, and we got the S1 pulled up, and we have a lot to go through. But there may be an awkward pause in this because we don't have every single number pulled out ahead of time. We are literally scrolling through the document live. We have a piece of paper taped to the wall in the studio with a very rough outline of what we're going to talk about. <laughs> and we agreed that we're going to try to take it slow and carry you guys through these important numbers as best we can. Yes. And we are going to start with uh, yearly numbers to stay at the highest possible level. And we're going to talk about revenue first. Now, keep in mind that we're not talking about bookings, which is the total spend on Uber's platform. We're going to talk about revenue, which is Uber's portion of that overall platform spend. So in 2014, because the S1 goes back all the way to 2014, Uber had revenue of $495 million. That nearly quadrupled in 2015 to $1.99 billion, call it $2 billion flat. In 2016, that grew to $3.85 billion. It expanded to $7.9 billion in 2017 and $11.3 billion in 2018. So from four, basically a half a billion to $11.3 billion from 2014 to 2018. Yeah, quick reminder, a lot of these we've we've seen, like I know there's been plenty of reports highlighting Uber's 2018 revenues of around $11 billion, but this is the first time we're getting a full glimpse into uh, financial history all the way back to 2014, and then also losses, which were interesting. Um, very, very interesting. I'll quickly run through losses beginning in 2014. So Uber lost um, $670 million that year. They were not profitable. The next year, they lost $2.7 billion. Again, not profitable. The next year, they lost $370 million, guessing there was a big... Oh, no, that was the year of the um, divestiture of... We just talked Uber about Uber China. This, of, yes, which they sold to Didi. The following year, in 2017, they lost $4 billion. Again, not profitable. And last year, they lost um, – well, actually, last year they were profitable. They um, posting – they don't have losses. They, they have profits. I can't, I can't even read it when there's profits because it's so rare. Um, $997 million. So nearly a billion dollars in profits in 2018. And why is that, Alex? So there's a bit of a nuance here. So Kate's correct when she runs through the, the bottom line numbers there. But what you have to keep in mind is Uber's not just reporting an operating loss number. That's the full gap net loss. And that's inclusive of things that they sell. So they have a, a, a $3 billion loss from operations 
2018, but about a billion dollars in gap profit. And that comes from a couple of things that, if you really want to kind of tag along with us, are on page 89 um, of the S1. And by 89, I actually mean 90. And that's because in uh, 2018, they had a $3.2 billion gain on a divester. So they sold something, they made a bunch of money off of that, and that plugged the hole that was their operating loss, bringing them into positive territory. So what we've seen from Uber is very quick growth, a history of steep operating losses, and two years in which divestors appear to have really helped the company move either closer to profitability or into that space. But if you're just thinking about how the company is actually performing on an operational basis, i.e. the things it does, it's still deeply unprofitable today, roughly on par with 2016 and 2018 with about a $3 billion operating loss. Right. I was just going to say, let's highlight that operating loss, because if Uber had not divested assets, which was Grab and Yandex, um, they would still be losing billions this year. So as we talked about when Lyft went public, Lyft was losing more money than almost any other pre-IPO company. Uh, Uber's in the same boat, and it's very easily making some of the most money at the same time as any company. And this is going to be the... uh According to Axios, the eighth largest IPO in history. That's astounding. We're talking about roughly, if you didn't catch the news before, people are expecting a $10 billion offering in the uh, in the IPO. And that'll be a hybrid of both primary shares and secondary shares. So existing shareholders and new equity they'll sell. And the company is targeting, again, rumors say, an evaluation of between $90 and $100 billion, which, Kate, as you'll recall, is down from that $120 billion number that was floated. Um, and Speculation is that that's because you know Lyft kind of went out and set some rough prices on what ride sharing revenue is worth, and that Uber is going to kind of target this ninety two hundred billion dollar range because of that. What do right. you think about that from a quick perspective? Yeah, there are some rumors that they've reined in their offering a little bit from like say one twenty billion to about a hundred billion um, as a result of Lyft's you know sort of. Uh stock volatility in the the first few weeks as a public company. I think it's probably less that and more lowering expectations so they can have a big pop in their stock as they, you know, debut. They may even reprice higher. I mean, we've seen a number of companies raise their range, price to the top of that, or even ahead of that. So it's... I mean, as much as these companies are identical, Uber is a global business and Lyft isn't. Uber is a massive operation and it's just, it's. I mean, it's five times larger than Lyft and I think the IPO is going to be. Yeah, and we're going to talk through some of the other numbers, including I think Uber Eats' bookings figures later. But the key distinction there, if you're kind of playing apples and oranges or apples and apples with the Lyft and Uber IPOs, is that Uber is not just North American. It does not just do ride hailing. Uh, it has the Uber Eats business, the Uber Freight business, and a minority stake in a number of competitors around uh, the world. But before we dig into that nuance, I want to talk quickly about the quarterly results. And if you're not familiar with why this matters, what you'll see is a lot of companies end up with kind of wonky numbers in their full year results, as we saw today. And so what you can do is by drilling down into the quarterly results, get more of a nuanced, nitty gritty look at what's going on. So I'm going to bore you with some numbers. So roll with me here. Let's take a look at the most recent quarter. The quarter ending December 31, 2018, and that's the most recent because Uber hasn't closed the books yet on Q1. It just ended. So now we're going to wait, and then we'll get that soon enough. But in the fourth quarter of 2018, Uber had revenue of $2.97 billion. So we'd round that up to $3.0 billion because that's how the kind of rounding works. And in that quarter, they had a loss of operations, an operating loss, of just over a billion dollars, so $1.05 billion. So roughly $3 billion in revenue, roughly $1 billion in operating losses. And that's because they spent $4 billion in the quarter. And that's kind of how you can see the numbers shake out. So Uber still is, in the most recent period, far from profitability. And to be a bit uh, negative, uh, I'm going to try to avoid having a general you know, bent in my views, but they recorded $2.944 billion in revenue in the third quarter of 2018 and only $2.974 in the fourth quarter, which is effectively no growth at all. 
and they lost um, another billion dollars in the quarter. So we're seeing some flattening growth, Kate, I think. Right. So if we're seeing flattening growth, I mean, if you're a public markets investor, what are you thinking when you're looking at this S1? Well, there's always a tension between growth and losses. And the faster you go, the more you can lose. But, here's but don't th- you want to see a clear path to prof- profitability? Before you even get there, I'd say, if you're not growing, you can't lose. And Uber lost a billion dollars due to operations in Q4 while posting effectively no revenue growth. That's a weird place to be in if you're going to go public. So I don't quite know how to square that. They do have a growth story. They do have a way to discuss growth. But okay, if they don't grow, how can they ever get a path to profitability? Right. So that makes me curious how uh, public market investors are going to treat Uber when it goes out. I mean, it's it's going to have high demand, of course, just like lifted, and especially in those final days. But will it have the exact same problem where a lot of investors sell and begin short selling the stock just right off the bat? And then, you know, we see a lot of volatility and some crazy... It's gonna it's gonna be fascinating, but they mm-hmm. will be if they're selling ten billion dollars in shares, both primary and secondary. There will be a larger float than we saw with Lyft, and that mm-hmm. could dampen uh, volatility. I mean, this is gonna be a well watched IPO, and all things that can happen will. Uh, but if you want to, if you want to dig into the S one, I really recommend taking a look at the quarterly results. It's on page one hundred and twenty one if you're following along, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. And uh, Kate, before we move on, can we talk about percentages for a minute? Because I think there's some interesting stuff to to be done there. Of course. Okay, so if you go. If you're following along at home to page 123 of the S1, there is the same normal income statement, but done as a percentage of revenue. And what this helps you do is see where Uber is driving efficiencies in its business as time has gone along. So, for example, we know that in the Q4 of 2018, Uber spent 54 percent of its revenue on cost of revenue. Now, that's a slightly adjusted number. What that means is they had a gross margin of roughly 46% before they take into account all their operating costs. So from there, we can see they spend 14% on operations and support, 33% of revenue on sales and marketing, 12% R&D, and 19% on uh, G&A, before 4% on depreciation and amortization. That works out to 135% of revenue in the fourth quarter, hence their loss. But what you can see looking backwards in time is how things have gotten better and not. So, for example, in uh, I don't know the March 31, 2017 quarter, operations was 20% of revenue. Now it's 14. But other things haven't gotten uh, any better. GNA was 19% in the March 31, 2017 quarter, and 19% yeah, in and December I'm, 31, 2018 quarter. I'm noticing that sales and marketing in 2017 they spent 36% of revenue, and um, that did drop off a bit, going down to 26%. In 2018, but this last quarter, it's back up to 33%. So I'm wondering why they'd be upping their spending in that. So, uh, so this is actually a pretty good segue to something that I wanted to talk about, which mm-hmm. was uh, how Uber is talking about paying drivers. And because I, I think if I recall correctly, well, Uber takes things in two different ways. You can talk about discounts and you can talk about um, incentives. And I forget how Uber itself actually accounts for those. But one thing we're keeping an eye on is how Uber essentially keeps both sides of its marketplace alive because they have to drive demand on the ridership side and provide uh, supply on the driver side. And there is a quote from the risk section that really stood out uh, to Kate and I as we were reading this S1 before taping in like the 10 minutes that we had. <laughs> Welcome to breaking news, everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, Kate, can I just quote this section? Is that going to be best? Yeah, just quote it. Okay. So everyone, roll with me while I put on my reading glasses. And uh, this is how Uber discusses the risks of driver happiness compared to financial incentives. While we aim to provide an earnings opportunity comparable to that available in retail, wholesale, or restaurant services or other similar work, we continue to experience dissatisfaction with our platform from a significant number of drivers. In particular, as we aim to reduce driver incentives to our fi- uh, to improve our financial performance, we expect driver dissatisfaction will generally increase. So there is at once a path to profitability and a discussion about how driver supply will become tighter in time. Right. And I think this is so important, and I hope a lot of attention is drawn to 
the fact that Uber is admitting that, you know, we know our drivers are unhappy and it's likely they're going to become more unhappy. And I think we all sort of knew this was coming because in the lead up to Uber and Lyft actually filing or, well, I guess dropping their S1s in between the time when which they had filed confidentially, they were both discounting all of their rides because they were trying to uh, augment their market share. And mm-hmm. I mean, the, that was great for their businesses. And for Lyft, it actually worked. And they did grow their market share in that time. But, uh, you know, the drivers paid the price. Drivers paid the price. And we've seen, for example, the recent um, Uber-related strikes in, I think it's L.A., mm-hmm. SoCal. Yes. Um, drivers kind of banding together to argue against uh, changes to the pay structure. And, you know, uh, as an independent observer, I think they have a point. But at the same time, Uber's right. cost structure demands that the company take more of each ride over time because it just it needs to cover its expenses. That's Uber's path to profitability is making more on each ride and taking money away from drivers. But And then the companies are both, Uber and Lyft are both trying, it seems, to um, do what they can for their drivers. Like, as we've talked about, they gave them the opportunity to participate in the IPO, Lyft. Kind I of, mean, yeah. It, it, what does that really mean when you're, if you're a driver who's never particip- who's never bought public market stock and has no idea how and what they're you, doing? If you bought it at the IPO price, you're $10 underwater right now. Right, exactly. So. so, I mean, and I was just talking to our transportation reporter, Megan, about this, and she's pretty, she's sort of angry that they're doing that without providing adequate resources and helping them understand what it even means to buy public market stock. Anyway, There's an analogy there to the gig economy as a whole and both these businesses and how they uh, offload costs. And there is a section here that talks about how if drivers became employees, it would definitely change Uber's business, which is a polite way of saying it. Yeah. And and last thought on this before we can move on is, um, so Lyft held their IPO in LA uh, as opposed to like, you know, in New York where where the headquarters are. They held their IPO in LA because that was their largest market and they saw that as sort of like a hat tip to their drivers. So I'm curious where, where you think IP, uh, Uber will hold, hold its IPO. I mean, I really want to make a joke here, but I'm probably just going to go ahead and not and say New York. Uh, given the scale of this, so Lyft raised, gosh, it was $2.4 billion in its yeah. IPO, give or take. This is going to be 10 according to rumors. We don't have a uh, price range yet or a share count, so mm. it's a, we're kind of speculating. But that's 4x. That's a lot of shares you have to sell. You probably have to go put on a tie and go to Wall Street and you know do the whole thing. I mean, Lyft's IPO was still massive, though, and they were able to do it in LA. Lyft had a massive IPO and a huge net loss. And then Uber yeah. came along and was like, what's up? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we are you, but larger and more global. So uh, kid, let's drill uh, back into the numbers a bit and talk okay. about bookings. Now, yes. bookings are the platform spend. So when you take a, a ride on Uber, let's say it's $16, Uber might get three or four of that. But the 16 goes into the bookings number. And, uh, and Uber talked about this a bit. Again, if you're following along, I'm on page two, so very hard to find. Uh, they're talking about how their, uh, their gross bookings grew from $18.8 billion in 2016 to $41.5 billion in 2018. That's the kind of growth that has made Uber the phenomenon that it is. It's very rare to see companies scale that quickly at one thousandth the size of spend. They have tapped into a global boom in consumer spend, a trend that really changed how we get around, changed how I got to TechCrunch's office today. I didn't have to walk or try to chase it in a cab with like a hacks. So I also took an Uber to the yeah, office today. I thought it was pretty ironic, but here you go. Anyways, that that's why as we talk about the losses and the revenue and all that, we're talking about the nuances of the business in its most recent incarnation, the kind of the most recent stats, but it's that amazing growth they've seen that put them in the position they are today to be as big as they are and as influential as they have become. So it's pretty exciting. Uh, let's talk a bit about who owns what because this deal is going to make a couple of people annoyingly wealthy. Um, sadly, no one in the room at the moment is getting a, a penny out of this. Um, <laughs> I wish. I looked at our producer like, is there something that I didn't know? And sadly, no. Uh, but Kate, you were going to talk us uh, yes, through this. So I please. will. Um, yeah, so this is 
this has got to be hands down the largest liquidity event for really any VC funds ever in history. This, I mean, a lot of these firms invested, you know, maybe tens of millions of dollars, say $30 million, and they're making billions of dollars. Like, just let that sit in for a second. It's insane the kind of money that firms and individual people are going to make from this. So let's just start with Uber co-founder Travis Kalanick. So Travis Kalanick, as you all know, was ousted from Uber for a lot a lot of reasons. Um, about two years ago, Dara Khosrowshahi has since stepped in as CEO. Um, Travis still owns 8.6% of the pre-IPO shares, which are worth approximately uh, $9 billion. So I mean, Travis Kalanick has already sold shares before. He's already a very wealthy mm-hmm. man. He's going to be even more wealthy, assuming he does sell these shares at some point after the IPO. Maybe his yachts will have smaller yachts that kind of follow them along. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's gonna. It's just, it's really unfathomable for me to even like that. Just amount of money, I, I have a hard time even imagining. But I think what we'll see is a lot of these people are going to um, reinvest in the ecosystem. Like Travis has a VC fund, although it doesn't get a lot of attention, it does exist. So anyway, he's going to have a lot of money. He's probably going to inv- reinvest a lot of that money in startups and other things. Continuing, um, so SoftBank owns sixteen point three percent of Uber. But um, they're not down as SoftBank. What's their actual? So, what's their title in this? So if you're reading with us, it says SB Cayman. That is a fund that is owned entirely by SoftBank. It's the SoftBank Vision Fund, okay. specifically. So this is the Vision Fund. I just want people might miss that. Right? I just no, kind of, totally. Yeah. That happens. Um, I often get a little confused when I'm looking at S ones because you'll see things like just bizarre. You have to read the fine print. Um, literally, that's uh, you know listed below where it explains. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's SoftBank. Um, then we have Benchmark. They have 11. percent uh, Benchmark has also sold shares, so they would have had more had they not sold. But um, they're probably very happy with the paydays they've already had. Yeah, 11% of $100 billion yes. is $11 billion. Exactly. And then we have Expo, Expo, which is um, a startup studio that is owned by Garrett Camp. Garrett Camp is a co-founder of Uber. He owns 6%. Um, he additionally... So he's listed twice because Expo is his, is his. So 6% and 6%, I assuming he means he owns 12%, just through different entities. I'm always concerned when I'm reading the ownership section because this is yeah. where it gets a little bit dicey. It, it does. Um, so either six or twelve. It's only a six billion dollar difference. Doesn't so matter. It's, it's he a gets billions of dollars. Yeah. And then finally, let's see. We have the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund. They own five point three percent of Uber. So again, worth billions of dollars. Billions. And lastly, again, these are just principal stakeholders. So these are people who own five percent or more. Um, Alphabet owns five point two percent, and that's Google. Google also owns five percent of Lyft. So they just made a billion dollars. Well. They have a billion dollars worth left stock approximately right now. So they're making billions of dollars on these two IPOs, and they were smart to invest in both companies. What are the one of the really rare times you see one investor having to play on both sides of of, of a kind and of a IPOs tech that area? were just like right on top of each other too. I mean, that's that's. I can't recall this ever happening in in tech history. Not I, at this scale. Definitely not at this scale yeah. for sure. It may actually be a first in which one corporate venture capital fund has had money in two successful, successive successful IPOs in the same sector that were direct domestic competitors. Yeah, and it's funny because there's, there was a lot of flack around the time that Alphabet made these investments, kind of saying, like, you're investing in two competitors. Like, what are you doing? What's your strategy? But um, as we see now, it doesn't matter. It worked out really well for them. Their strategy is laughing all the way to the bank, I feel, and then also maybe selling Waymo Tech to either of these companies. Um, which is, you know, probably going to work out some point I think that, yeah, they have a long-term vision. Um, yes. So, uh, you know, there are a lot of other investors that aren't going to be listed on here because they own smaller stakes. And that includes some of the earliest investors, Lowercase Capital, which is Chris Saka's fund, First Round Capital, which was, you know, an investor in Uber's first round, and Menlo Ventures, which was the one, you know, the company that was mentioned in the Forbes, the company, the firm mentioned in the Forbes article who 
who kind of stole Andreessen's lead on that Series B and ended up acquiring a big stake. They've sold a lot of their um, stock along the way and made you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, they still own more than 2% of Uber. So. And investors do that essentially as a way to de-risk their investment in a company. They take a little bit of money off the table, they returns to their LPs, LPs Right, it makes happy. their LPs really happy, and it's like kind of why, why not, especially if you're able to still sort of um, keep a good portion of the company in your hands and, yeah. and, and then wait for that IPO. Why not make hundreds of millions of dollars and return multiple funds along the way if you can? I mean, the other argument is YOLO. But I mean, I, both all the smart investors took some money off the table, it seems, along the way. And I think there's a lesson yeah. there for companies that get this big and don't go public for this long. And I, one last thought about uh, stakeholders. I was looking through a pitch book to see who was like investors in the seed round, individual investors. Jeff Bezos, uh, Brian Chesky, Airbnb co-founder. Yeah. Um, I mean, you name like you name all the big VCs like uh, Scott Bannister. I mean, it was just a really interesting lineup. I don't I, my guess is like most of those have have sold their their shares in the secondary market or something, but I was surprised to see that. Well, or they got diluted to the point they don't show up anymore. Because if you put 100K into the the initial thing, there's been some money going in after you. Your stake will go down as time goes along. Exactly. It gets diluted along the way. But I just thought that was kind of funny to see. And people say Silicon Valley is a small circle. I mean, if you want evidence of it, look right there. This is is a club in which you were not invited. Sadly. Um, okay, so before we get to Kareem, uh, I want to throw out some other stuff because people talk a lot about Uber not just as a ride-hailing platform, but also as a kind of a mobility platform for all sorts of things. And so uh, Uber Freight, part of the business that I had forgotten about, um, had $359 million of gross bookings for 2018. So compared to Uber's, you know, forty-five billion, whatever it was in total gross bookings, it's not a lot of money. But to have generated three hundred and fifty-nine million in total platform spend for the freight business is is, is material because it's still a lot of money, even if it's not quite Uber scale mm-hmm. money. And I think that's worth pointing out. And then I, I was pulling numbers. Um, Uber had, I think it was, yes, they had uh, seven point nine billion of Uber Eats gross bookings for the year ended December thirty one, twenty eighteen, and two point six billion of that came in the fourth quarter, and that's a lot of burritos. But it's an impressive stack that shows Uber has a second business that will do um, over ten billion in in kind of total platform spend next this year. Uh, that's huge. Yeah, I mean, I gotta imagine that was part of their big pitch to investors in this sort of run up to the IPO. It's just the growth they're having outside of ride hailing. Yeah. Here's a question though. And I, I haven't actually figured out the answer to this yet, so it may, it may be a dumb question. But we pointed out that Uber's kind of net revenue slowed to essentially a crawl from Q3 to Q4. Presumably, you know, Uber Eats grew quite a lot. Cause we know it's 2.6 billion out of 7.9 uh, in Q4. Does that mean that ride hailing may have actually shrunk in Q4 compared to Q3, like a sequential decline? I, I'm going to look into the numbers. Sequential more decline and, in revenues, sequential decline in, in, in gross bookings. Uh, sequential decline in net revenue from ride hailing in particular, because revenue was essentially flat. Uber Eats went up materially, and that means that ride hailing probably went down. Yeah, I mean it's it's highly possible, but you have to look at all the other businesses they're running within, like I don't where their spending's going, autonomous vehicles, freight. Like I I don't know, but that's possible. I I would say I'm leaning toward unlikely. Leading toward unlikely. Okay, well, um, our predictions tend to be wrong on the show, so I'm going to go with Kate's view of that one because I'm probably the one who's <laughs> over my skis a little bit. Um, but Kate, can you tell us about Kareem? Yeah, so um, we we thought this was interesting. It, it does take note um, in the S1 that there's a possibility that Uber's acquisition of Kareem will not close. Um, this is, however, in the risk factor summary, which is the part of the S1 where the company basically is like, here's all the reasons why we might fail. Um, and why we really suck, but like actually, these are all extremely unlikely scenarios. So Uber's acquisition of Kareem 
is in the process of closing right now. But <clears throat> I think they have to be clear that, you know, they don't they can't see the future. So there's a possibility it won't close. And in which case that would stunt Uber's growth because Uber acquired Corium um, in a deal that was just essentially Uber purchasing growth in the Middle Eastern market where they don't operate uh, a ride hailing business at all. Yeah. I mean, Uber really wants to have exposure to the entire world and they are not going to stop until they have. I mean, they, they want to be a world dominating company. They want to lead the world in ride hailing either through minority stakes, majority stakes or their own business itself. It's still very audacious. And I think uh, I want to talk about adjusted losses really quick, and then we're going to talk about complexity, and then we're going to leave you alone. That's the plan for this show. So if you are following along at home, roll with me to page 90 in your S1 document. And uh, if you're still scrolling, that's because I am too. Uh, Welcome to live taping. Uh, And then at the bottom of that page, there is a note called adjusted EBITDA. Now, EBITDA, if you don't know, uh, stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. It is an adjusted metric. When you see adjusted EBITDA, it means that it's EBITDA with even more adjustments. This is a metric that a lot of companies that are unprofitable use to show kind of adjusted profitability. And this is a number you'll see quoted a lot in the media. I think the Times used this uh, as their kind of Uber profit number. But in 2016, Uber's adjusted EBITDA was negative uh, $2.5 billion. That rose ever so slightly to negative $2.6 billion in 2017, but shrunk materially to negative $1.85 billion in 2018. So you can say that Uber's revenue went up, as did its gross profit, and its adjusted EBITDA has shown some improvement over time. It's just not, uh, it's not amazing. You know, it's, it's, it's still a massive loss. It's double Lyft's net loss in, uh, in 2018. And I'm curious to see how investors decide to, how to weight it. Because, you know, Uber has traditionally been a growth play, as we said earlier, which is why losses matter less. But its growth is slowing as it matures. And it's still putting up some relatively sticky deficits. Do you have a prediction of what um, Uber's share price will be? Man, whatever I say, the opposite will happen. Just, so just make a prediction. I, do I say the opposite of what I think so that it does happen so that I was actually originally correct? Or, no, that wouldn't make you originally correct. <laughs> but, no, but I would know that I was right okay, in my well, mind. Uber, so Lyft price at $74 per share. What do we think? <laughs> That's a really tough <laughs> You have to articulate the question before I can answer it. What do we think Uber will price its share at? Price uh, its shares at when it IPOs. Oh, that's just a random number generator. Um, what was its last per share private price? Mm, well, I, I'd have to Google that, and I'm not going to make our audience <laughs> wait for that. So maybe Look, we'll it, follow up on I that. I guarantee it will be a very interesting number that we will talk about on equity at a future date. Fine. Fine. Uh, and to close us off, Kate, you found this S1 to be, uh, as I did, complex and it, I mean, it, messy. Disgusting, ugly, gross. Tell me why. Um, I mean, I just clicked on my favorite little button, which is um, select consolidated financial data. And there was just this massively ugly table full of a lot of numbers. And as I, I mean, as you guys heard me struggle to even read the, the um, net loss metrics just because I was confused to see profits, especially from Uber. But as we've clarified. Those are not really profits. Um, this is just not not a... What did you say when we first started taping? It's like a... It's not a clean S1. There's, no, there's so I mean, much going on here. It's uh, not clean at all. It's like when you look at cap tables that are just so unorganized and you're like, oh my god, that's my nightmare. This is a nightmare to me. The Zoom S1 was much better. The Zoom S1 clean, was so simple. Beautiful, profitable. It's great. <laughs> We're such S1 elitists on this show. Uber's not good enough for us with their piddling $100 billion valuation. How dare they not have a cleaner document? <laughs> I am a man of leisure, and I will not be bothered with, with uh, minutia. Um, anyway, right. I, think, I think we should call it. I think, yep. I think everyone's going to need some time to digest. We will have more posts up and more tweets. And We'll be talking about this uh, until they go public, which 
I think is going to be the first weekish of May. I'm not predicting that. Just what I heard. First I, week of I, May. I heard a prediction. So yeah. So you know, for the next month, we'll be talking about this. We'll continue to unpack this filing as Alex and I actually get a chance to read the entire document to fully digest all six thousand four hundred and seventy-seven pages of it. Uh, it's, uh, that's sarcasm. It's not actually like, that wait, long. Oh it's, my God. it's a couple hundred. <laughs> it's essentially as long as the Mueller report, but you can read this one. All right, everyone, that's Equity Shot. Kate, thank you as always for leading us, and uh, we'll see you all real soon. Bye. Bye. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.